Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Better Movement podcast. My guest this week is James Steele. James is an associate professor of sport and exercise science at Solent University and the principal investigator at the UK Active Research Institute. He's also a member of the team of experts helping the UK revise its official guidelines for physical activity. James has published extensive research on exercise, especially strength training, and also on low back pain, the connection between low back pain and low back extensor strength, and whether we can treat low back pain with with strength training. He's also written something, uh, uh, some evolutionary perspectives on exercise and low back pain, which is a subject I find especially interesting. In this podcast, we talk about all those subjects, as well as the prevalence of low back pain in hunter-gatherer populations, whether low back pain is a disease of civilization, why humans have weak backs and strong hips, and James' interest in high-intensity, one-set-to-failure-style resistance training, and other subjects. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, I guess we're recording. James Steele, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. No problem. Pleasure to be here, Todd. All right. So you're a sports scientist. How long have you been doing that and what got you into it? And was it an interest in science? Was it an interest in sports? Tell us tell us how you uh, came to study this so much. Wow. Okay. So my uh, going back to kind of like what was the driving interest for me is, uh, and I'm not embarrassed of it at all, but it's it's an incredibly like nerdy, geeky origin story um you know I, I was always an athlete growing up uh, i ran track i played basketball um was generally you know pretty good at most sports um but the thing that really kind of got me into um you know i always played sports but what really kind of drove me into training per se was um honestly watching like being in that era that grew up watching dragon ball z <laughs> watching what? dragon ball z i don't know what and, that is uh, Oh, it's, uh, you know, it's a uh, uh, 2000s uh, um, anime. Well, it's not. It's from earlier than that. But when uh, when anime series first started kind of like drifting over to the West um, and uh, weren't, weren't quite as popular as they are now, I know like, you know, way back when uh, Akira kind of was the, the, the movie that most people were familiar with um, in the West in terms of Japanese animation. And uh, yeah, I was maybe 13, 14 and... Um, Dragon Ball Z was on Cartoon Network and I remember watching it and just being uh, I, I was always I, I grew up being a fan of Japan anyway um, I'm you know I'm learning Japanese as a language and been fascinated by the culture and then all of a sudden it was like there was a show that was incredible and I found out oh my god it's from Japan as well um, but anyway it was you know it's it's a typical kind of shonen they um, the characters uh you know, train that it's martial arts and they, um, they get stronger. And, you know, I became kind of uh, somewhat obsessed with that, that idea, which got me into resistance training and, um, and yeah, so it was a mixture of sort of sports and, uh, conditioning and, um, then, uh, you know, and, and anime influence and, uh, yeah, then I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't know that anime pushed people into sports science. I didn't know there was a connection. No, well, so, so I, I was, I wasn't sure what to do because I, when I went to college, uh, which I guess would be, um, the equivalent of kind of high school, we call it college over here. Um, 
I studied business, maths, IT, accounting, and I thought I was going to be, you know, working in the financial industry in some uh, way, shape, or form. Um, but I hated it. I, I, I didn't stimulate me at all. I worked for a year at a building society um, uh, where I did meet my wife, so that was, uh, a, you know, a good outcome from that. But yeah, I, I, I didn't enjoy that, and um, you know, we both kind of sat down and decided we should, I should pursue something that I was interested in. So. Um, Solent University. I live in Southampton. I've, I've lived in Southampton my whole life. Um, they were just starting in 2007 their first sport and exercise science degree, um, and so it was a, the, the right sort of. It was perfect timing, really. So I, I started the undergraduate degree, uh, graduated from that in 2010, um, and then went uh, got a taste of research doing that, um, working with uh, my my supervisor, uh, Dr. Stuart Bruce Lowe. Um, and then he, because I realized how much I enjoyed research, I was encouraged um, early on to consider a PhD. And so kind of went straight from undergrad into a, a PhD program and um, yeah, finished that in 2014. And um, and along that started teaching and um, getting involved in a lot of other projects. And it's all kind of snowballed since then. So before you got into doing formal sports science, were you doing like informal bro science on your own in in terms of like doing personal training was that kind of the the gateway i mean so i i was i was training myself but yeah the the, the primary source of information was uh, probably flex magazine um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh it was funny actually because um, were you doing bodybuilding or was this more trying to be a better sprinter or an athlete um, I was interested in bodybuilding um, until the realization that I just did not have the genetics for it. Um, you know, kind of, I had to come to terms with that fairly early on. Um, but yeah, I was, I was interested in, um, you know, the role that kind of um, training could have in terms of sports performance, um, you know, just general kind of health and well-being. I was generally just, just interested in it. And I, I'm a little bit of a masochist as well. And so kind of got the taste for in, in like I I'm one of those rare people who who like training and, and like training very hard. Um, but it was funny, actually, like speaking of uh, of Flex magazine and, and kind of what led me on to my, my PhD research was it was a strange coincidence because in 2007 um, was when Arthur Jones um, passed away and he Arthur Jones, he, the guy who started high intensity training. Hit. Yeah, yeah. So, so he was. Um, he started out. He he's a fascinating character. Um, if you ever get the chance to kind of dig James into his smoked. history, yeah. His um, he 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 was a, a multimillionaire across a variety of industries. He's got you know something like hundreds of patents against his name for um, you know, ranging from excise equipment to you know camera equipment and filming. He uh, his his um ranch in ocala florida was um uh, eventually became uh, john travolta's home um he had runways he had a private zoo and uh, his um I th- I, i'm gonna forget exactly what it's called but his autobiography is something called like um uh faster planes uh bigger crocodiles and and something women <laughs> so you can get an idea of who what he was like from that but yeah, he he died in 2007, the year I started my degree. And I remember reading a copy of Flex magazine that had a kind of um, obituary in there for him and talked about him starting the Nautilus um, uh, exercise company and um, the sort of development of, you know, really it was it was his um, 
Nautilus company and Nautilus machines that kind of sparked off the resistance machine kind of boon in the uh, in, in the leisure and and sort of fitness sector. You know, m- pretty much every gym you look in, like resistance machines are all derivatives nowadays of those early Nautilus designs. Um, and albeit unknowingly to him, um, a lot of his machines were um, already sort of in existence from uh, Gustav Zander's old um, equipment from the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, although Jones kind of apparently found out about them after he had made a lot of his designs. Um, but yeah, anyway, he he it was it was a weird coincidence because I I started my undergrad degree and. Um, uh, Stuart Bruce Lowe was was already involved in some research um, using the Medex lumbar extension machine, which is um, Medex was a subsequent company that Arthur Jones founded after he sold uh, Nautilus, um, which also made excise machines. But they he, his he he kind of changed his interest more towards uh, wanting to produce things that could have more clinical applications. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember sitting in in uh, this session because Stuart was looking for undergrad students to who were interested in getting involved and in, and in learning a bit about research. And he was going to be running a, an RCT and um, and wanted to know if people wanted to get involved and gain some experience. And so I was interested in that. And I I went along to this seminar where he introduced a study and talked a bit about the background and and this name Arthur Jones kept coming up and Medex. And I was like, I, f- I feel like I've heard that before. And yeah. I remember kind of reaching down into my bag and finding this copy of Flex magazine and looking. I was like oh my god like it's a, this is the guy that died recently and um and yeah and then it, i i got involved in um the study that he was running helped out with a lot of the data collection um spent a lot of time working with the with the lumbar extension machine and um reading a lot of the sort of literature in that area and um and yeah then the opportunity came to to move into a phd uh, program and um, we decided, you know, I decided that I, I'd pursue research in, in, in that area. So looking at um, the application of kind of um, isolated lumbar extension resistance training specifically in chronic low back pain. Um, I should say my undergraduate dissertation used the device as well, but it was a, it was a, I shot myself in the foot of trying to do an overly complicated intervention study as an undergrad when I had very little time to do it. <laughs> and so subsequently didn't do a very good study. Uh-huh. So you've done a lot of research on low back pain, chronic low back pain and its relationship to low back extensor strength, low back extensor endurance, whether you can treat low back pain by working on low back strength and endurance, especially through the use of this special Medex machine. Uh, I've seen lots of studies you can do. Let, let's kind of go through the, this research because I know you've done a lot of uh, work in this area. What about what have you found about correlations between low back pain and low back extensor strength? <clears throat> yeah, so, um, so I guess probably to start off with, um, one of the first things I did during my PhD, which most most people do, is to do um, you know literature reviews, and so the the general kind of uh, premise around the research that I was doing was to say, well, you know, first of all, is there a is there even really a, a problem that that could potentially be addressed by um, specifically strengthening that that musculature, um, and so I I, I did a literature review, which uh, was subsequently published. That was um, essentially a kind of reappraisal of, of the deconditioning um, hypothesis in low back pain, because re- reading over a lot of that literature, 
deconditioning was all, always kind of um it, it was very poorly defined in my opinion it was kind of this kind of general sort of phenomenon that people um and and bear in mind this is you know this is probably 10 years ago now now so so people's um operational definitions of things and and uh, the nuance that they apply to these discussions it has has definitely moved on i think but but a lot of the early literature around this topic um conflated things like general fitness um and uh reduced uh, you know general fitness or or elements of physical capacity um and they lumped them in the same sort of category as reductions in behavioral outcomes. So like if someone was less physically active, um, that was kind of, you know, almost taken as like, oh, they're deconditioned. Um, and the, the sort of direction of relationships was a little bit confused and um, it wasn't really easy to tease out exactly what was going on there. So I kind of said, well, I'm, I'm interested in specifically um, looking at whether or not it's worthwhile applying um, something specifically to the lumbric sensors. You know, who, other things could could be deconditioned, but let's start off with saying like, is the are the lumbric sensor musculature generally um, deconditioned in uh, chronic low back pain? And so I, I did a, a, a literature review, which kind of broke it down into three areas, which was to look at functional outcomes, um, you know, strength. Um, you know, uh, force production capacity of that musculature, um, which which requires um, the exclusion of hip extensor um, torque to be able to measure well. Um, I, I, I've got a little bit more relaxed on that. I think a little bit bit now. Um, I think think some of the early stuff, and I was sort of like like I bought in way more strongly than I probably do now on most things. Um, to the you know how important the isolation uh, is there. Well, let's um, talk about the, the the original idea there. So, how do you test whether someone has uh, strong low back extensors? Now, you could have them uh, do that thing where you grab onto a table and you put the legs behind you and how long can you hyperextend the legs behind you or pick up a heavy weight and that tests the low back musculature, or you can get rid of the hip extensors and just test the low back on one of these machines. So what are the differences between these approaches and why does it matter? Yeah. So, I mean, in the, in the first two examples you gave, um, is what we would refer to as trunk extension as being a compound movement. So there is in, in those kinds of movements, um, well, uh, admittedly that that you gave some isometric examples, but I'm going to use movement in a kind of quite general sort of sense there. Um, the 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 resistance that is being or what is being resisted is acting across multiple joints uh, there. And again, as I say that, you know, obviously even isolated lumbar extension <laughs> is occurring across multiple joints in the spine. Um, but you know, if if we can broadly categorize it, those movements involve. A, a hip extension moment and also a lumbar extension uh, moment as well, and so you know you have the large musculature of the uh, of the glutes and the hamstrings that are contributing primarily to hip extension, um, and then you've got the various muscles of the lumbar extensor group that uh, contribute more to the lumbar extension component of those movements, and um, there's a lot of kind of converging evidence from various different uh, areas that at least suggests that um, you know. Someone who has strong trunk extension, uh, someone who is strong in trunk extension, may not necessarily have strong lumbar extension when you remove the uh, hip extension component and test them in isolation. Um, 
And actually, to give an interesting example, we published a study. Um, well, actually, we published it a couple of years ago, but um, the um, it's only just gone to print um, because journalist strength and conditioning research take forever to send their issues uh, out. Um, but actually, one of my existing P current PhD students was involved with a project um, with me a few years back. Um, he's a powerlifter, and we actually managed to recruit some uh, a number of competitive uh, powerlifters, um, some of which were incredibly strong. Um, and we tested them on the lumbar extension machine. Uh, we had competitive and non-competitive powerlifters. And we also had, uh, from a previous study that James Fisher had completed, um, a comparator group of just generally kind of healthy, resistance-trained males. Um, and what we see is uh, it, there was essentially very little difference between those three groups. So despite the fact that the powerlifters were- that powerlifters don't have strong low back muscles. I know. I, I was almost expecting, like, I, I was expecting us to be proven wrong here. Like, I was really expecting them to be stronger than they were. <laughs> and, uh, well, I mean, let, let's, let's, let's make sure everyone understands this. You, you take a bunch of guys who are doing heavy deadlifts, heavy squats. These are, these are uh, movements where you really feel it in the low back, and you look at the low back muscles on these guys, and they're huge, but you tested them on this Ilex low back isolation machine, and they're not doing that much better on this than other people. How, how do you explain that? Well, so this is where I think, um, you know, the, the, the movements that they're doing are probably not providing as much stimulation to that muscle group and, and you know, developing strength in that musculature as, you know, we would expect. Um, there's obviously going to be a skill component to it as well, although because we test in, you know, isometrically, it's 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 minimal skill, although there is always going to be a skill component to it anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, like, not, you know, not to give uh, an anecdotal example, but um, we, we had a guy in there who was, you know, easily had 100 pounds on me and uh, in terms of body weight and, and was probably deadlifting, you know, ne nearly sort of three times what I can lift. And, uh, and yet his lumbar extension strength. And you crushed him on the machine? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that makes me think that there's specific skills involved in, in, in using that machine. But on the other hand, I've used machines like that. And the whole point of them is to take away the whole motor learning aspect of it because the machine stabilizes everything for you. All that's left to do is push. Exactly. Exactly. Um, like I, I, I'm, I almost want there to be a, a more simple explanation because it, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't feel like it should be uh, as simple as saying, saying like, yeah, their their lumbar extensors are not particularly well conditioned. Um, but you know, there, there's uh, going back as well to the the idea of of whether this is something that's that's present in low back pain. We. Uh, we reviewed the literature, and, and and there were a number of issues with the studies when we did this review um, that looked at. Um, we we did look at studies that measured compared trunk extension between symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals, um, and the results across them are way more variable. Like um, some show no difference, some some <laughs> contrasting they actually show people with low back pain have slightly better, um, you know, trunk extension endurance or strength or whatever. The trunk extension um, could be created by the powerful hip extensors. That's that's so it's not isolating the way you, you you'd be exactly yeah yeah. Um, but when you look across the studies um, that have um, tested isolated lumbar extension, um, there tends to be a um, that there's more consistently evidence that those with low back pain tend to have lower than uh, typical uh, lumbar extension. Okay, um, so you, so you maybe you get the correlation between back pain and the, and the low back strength. But hasn't uh, maybe it's McGill who's found that you, there is a correlation between 
low back extensor endurance as tested through trunk extension and the kind of line on the table test is, is what, what's the research on that? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we, we did have, we have some data where we have taken uh, trunk extension endurance using the Bering Sorensen test um, and also um, lumbar extension strength in both healthy and uh, symptomatic low back pain participants. Um, and it's interesting because I think, like I said, you know, across, when you look across the body of literature that's measured trunk extension, there's far more sort of variability in terms of the findings. There's, uh, to be honest, I, I'd like to go back at some point and properly meta-analyze all this because uh, back then during my PhD, I didn't have the requisite statistical skills to be able to do that kind of analysis. Whereas now I'm I'm, I'm involved in a lot of meta-analyses as the person doing that analysis now. Um, and so it's on my list to go back and do properly, properly. But at the time I was kind of just interpreting, you know, what does the trend of results look like? And, you know, like for example, some of McGill's studies and, and uh, a number of others have shown that trunk extension endurance might be more predictive, but trunk extension strength is not. Um, very few studies have measured, for example, uh, trunk strength and endurance and lumbar extension and uh, strength and, and endurance. Um, but when we've looked at both healthy and, and symptomatic participants, there's, there's a very poor correlation between performance in a trunk extension endurance test and lumbar extension strength. Um, so they, they seem to be definitely kind of measuring different things. Um, so yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's kind of kind of messy. We one of the issues I had with the literature on lumbar extension strength at that point in time was um, most of the studies are, were pretty old um, and very few. Um, in fact, not uh, I don't think any of them, if I'm rem remembering correctly, had um, explicitly excluded those with back previous uh, those with chronic low back pain who had had previous surgery um, or had. Um, uh, uh, well, surgery was the ma main issue because obviously prior posterior surgery is going to have a big impact on the uh, musculature. Um, and so although, you know, it was maybe unlikely that many of them had, uh, many of the participants had had previous surgery, um, we were interested in in knowing whether or not there was a difference in symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals when we, we controlled for that. So we did do a study, um, a couple of my students led on a few years back, um, uh, Becky Conway and um, Jess Behenna uh, were the, the kind of leads on that research. And, and we recruited a relatively large sample size um, compared to the previous research as well. We had nearly nearly 100 participants for that study and um, both healthy and um, symptomatic. Um, and we did find that when you when you exclude for surgery, there was still a uh, lower back, lower lumbar extension strength in those with chronic low back pain. Um, now the difficult thing is here is it, this is all cross-sectional. This is all associated. Yeah, let, let's get into the uh, the perspective and 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 the causal analysis because I know you've done that as well. Hmm. So we've not we've not explicitly collected data on that ourselves, but yeah, one of the things I did um, in in that review to go back to it as well was we looked at obviously functional outcomes. So we looked at strength, isolated lumbar extension strength. We also looked at. Um, uh, studies of uh, morphological and histological characteristics of the musculature itself. So, you know, was there reduced cross-sectional area, reduced density, um, you know, both at the whole muscle and, and fiber level. Um, and uh, and then we also looked at um, fatigability characteristics using uh, from studies that had used like spectral analysis of, uh, or, you know, power analysis of EMG signals. Um, and again, there, there seems to be, when you take the body of literature cross-sectionally, there's a pretty, there seems to be at least some consistency in terms of those with, with uh, back pain seem to have evidence in general of some, some degree of specific deconditioning. Um, 
the prospective studies are a little bit more difficult because um, there are fewer of them. I mean, prospective studies are harder to do. Um, they and they typically had um, there was only really one study that had used lumbar extension strength. Um, most of you looked at trunk extension, um, and so we had to be a little bit more sort of cautious in our interpretation of those prospective studies. Um, but again, there, there, there was some evidence that, you know, those who were um, weaker were at, at higher risk of um, of sustaining an injury that might lead to uh, chronicity at some point in the future. Is that your proposed causal connection between poor low back strength and pain is an acute injury? I think so. I think logically it makes sense. Or is to me. it a chronic buildup of minor injuries over time, or or both? I, I, I personally, I think it could be both because I mean, logically, you can't have chronic pain unless you've had acute pain. <laughs> like, so, so something has. But sometimes to have you to... get sometimes you get pain that comes on without any. Oh my god, that hurts! It's, yeah, yeah, no. exactly. So, 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 I, I think there's probably a. Uh, some sort of, and I don't want to oversimplify it, um, but you know, some sort of. Um, you know, thresholdish kind of model where you know th there are. Um, I, I, I like Vert Mooney's um, analogy. Um, his his autobiography is is great, by the way. I, I definitely recommend it. Um, called the unguarded moment, um, and uh, he 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 uses the, the the metaphor to kind of describe the various kind of you know so, so things that have happened throughout his life that that really influenced him, but but also uses it to describe the uh, the idea that. You know, injury and pain occurs in those those moments we experience where we're not able to kind of guard against them, and that could happen because um, you know demands exceed capacity at a particular point point in time, um, or for whatever reason we're not able to muster the capacity to be able to uh, resist whatever you know demands are placed on us, um, and that could be a you know <laughs> something acute as there's there's um, some. Uh, um, laps in motor controls. We go to bend over and pick over a pen, uh, pick yeah. up a pen, or you know, lifting eight hundred pounds in a deadlift, or um, you know, or, or the, the slow accumulation of of, um, yeah. of wear and tear over time that could potentially. And this is, I'm always really cautious about this because it's. I, I think this is very much a probabilistic model uh, in that these things probably. Um, are um, moderating the effect in that that they they increase the probability that you will be susceptible to stuff like it's this. It's one maybe. factor of many in low back pain. We we're talking about this one factor because we're interested yeah. in it. And we're focusing on it. But exactly, yeah. uh, I know from reading your stuff, and you know from reading my stuff, back pain is complex, multifactorial. Not you won't find super high correlations between any specific pathological defect in the back, at least that we know of and low back pain, but maybe this is one of the factors that is controllable and that we can, we can, well, let's talk about that treatment. You, you have some uh, research as well on treating low back pain with doing the work on the uh, MedEx low back machine. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, so that kind of led into the, I mean, the first part of my PhD was like, establishes there a problem that, that's worth trying to address with this. Um, and then, yeah, then the second step was, okay, well, if, if we do think that there is at least some evidence that specific lumbar extensor deconditioning could be a, not the um, kind of uh, a component in, in low back pain, what can we do about that? So the obvious thing is, well, you know, uh, a resistance training um, intervention can help uh, address muscular deconditioning. And um, yeah, so we had, I, I 
I did a review as well to look at, well, what is the evidence on the best, um, uh, you know, sort of approaches to specifically addressing lumbar extensive deconditioning and, and, you know, a number of uh, studies have shown that if you train trunk extension, you typically don't develop isolated lumbar extension as much as if you train specifically. That could be a specificity component, um, but I think there's converging lines. Why, of why is that, by the way? I Because I, when I do these exercises that you're calling just trunk extension, I feel my lower back really working. If I'm uh, picking up, uh, if I'm doing a deadlift, if I'm doing uh, the leg hyperextension thing, I, I feel my low back working and it feels like the weak link. Is it because you can kind of cheat a little bit and maybe not keep the lower doses or, or what's going on there? Yeah. Uh, do you know what? Like I don't, I don't have, I have a, a kind of speculation as to what that might be. Um, and I wonder if to some extent that um, what, what is being experienced is, is a perception of the tension across the foracolumbar fascia primarily. Um, and uh, you know, I, I wonder whether or not it's it's less about with feet because our, our perceptions are crap, by the way. Like, like, uh, one, I mean, one area of interest for me is is um, uh, just not my camera. Uh, effort phenomenology and, and our perception of effort and how well that. Let's get into that for sure, but let's make sure we finish yeah. up this low back but, thing. And it's the same thing, you know. No, we're 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 terrible at kind of actually knowing what's going on in our bodies. We think we're really good at it, but so you feel <laughs> I'm something. So you feel something intense going on in your low back, that might be a passive uh, tense contraction of the fascia or the connective tissue and not an active muscular contraction. Potentially, potentially, yeah, yeah. That's not bad, I, I kind of like that, I kind of like that. So uh, besides this, um, well, tell, tell us, uh, can we treat low back pain with with the low back uh, extensor strengthening work on the on the machine and does that work better than anything else? first answer is definitely yes i mean we've we've done a few studies now and we've shown um you know at least compared to non-training controls and we've tried a few different sort of iterations of the device um that when you um you know you train on the device we see pretty substantial reductions in pain reductions in uh disability um or at least self-report disability um there is some, uh, we, we've done at least what, well, my um, su- uh, supervisors had previously done uh, a study comparing um, restrained and unrestrained. So they trained on the same lumbar extension device, but with or without the restraints that, that um, prevent the trunk extension from occurring um, and did see better results in the, um, in the restraints so of the isolated lumbar extension versus the trunk extension condition. Um, but and this is this is a big but like like there is a real lack of comparative intervention data looking at trunk ex- uh, sorry lumbar extension um, strengthening specifically compared to other um, intervention approaches. Um, I mean, there's there's one study from uh, from Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, or from Abu Dhabi. I can't remember exactly where where now. Um, but there, there's there's one study that's looked at. Um, at a few, de- um, I'm trying to remember exactly now. I think they may have had an aerobic uh, training component or a kind of. Um, it's from 2005 now, so it's been a while since I looked at it. Um, but n- needless to say, that there, there are a few comparative um, studies looking at this compared to other interventions. Um, but what we do know is f- from the um, at least um, compared to control conditions, we see fairly large um, improvements. And one thing that we have seen is um, we I managed to get hold of data from um, 
uh, from some other authors as well who had done studies using the lumbar extension machine and had uh, measured pain outcomes and disability outcomes and low back pain. Um, and we do see a relationship between, um, a, a, and f- for these outcomes, what's I mean, it's a moderate uh, correlation, small to moderate correlation, but actually that's fairly big when you consider what, what we're looking at um, between increases in strength and reductions in pain and disability on the lumbar extension device, which is interesting, I think, because when um, you look at other um, studies that have looked at things like motor control training or um, uh, or trunk extension training and then have correlated the changes in performance outcomes um from those interventions with pain and disability, they tend to see next to no reductions. Um, so are now, you talking about the fact that in these studies where they do say like motor control to help your back pain, people get better, but the people who get better didn't have better motor control. Is that what you're referring exactly, to? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's, it's not obviously mess- wasn't the key ingredient. Yeah. Which, which then again, makes us think that um, again, not the ingredient because um, I mean, there's evidence that, um, you know, most kind of psychosocial outcomes improve as well, just as a result of engaging in this kind of intervention. And, and I can say from having, you know, spent hours putting people through sessions on the, on the machine, you know, people, uh, there is definitely a psychological component to it as well. People come out feeling stronger, they're more confident, and whether that's because they're stronger, or whether it's because their pain's improving and which direction all of this goes is their pain getting better because they're feeling stronger and more confident or is there are they feeling stronger and confident because their pain's getting like it's it's difficult to say but um yeah we do at least think think there's there's something potentially to um to some specific strengthening of, of that mu- muscle group group that we we don't see um those results replicated from other kinds of uh strengthening and exercise interventions yeah, you know, I'll tell you, I've been on those uh, isolated lumbar movement machines, and I get a pretty good psychosocial response from those. I, I'm kind of a high responder in general. If I do, you know, if I go do a deadlift and it feels kind of good, I'll walk around that day feeling stronger. Like I really feel stronger. I can't possibly be stronger because you know the adaptation. Probably fatigue. Because it's yeah. just one set of deadlifts of a hundred pounds. But but but. Um, but I mean, I'm actually weaker because, you know, because I fatigued myself, but I really feel like viscerally stronger and it affects my self-conception, affects my self-image. I, I feel more robust and I like those isolated machines that kind of makes my back feel a way it doesn't normally feel. I feel muscles firing that don't normally fire, the, the whole area is kind of pumped up. And uh, I, th- I think that stuff's pretty important. Yeah, and I think that I mean, there's a lot of potential mechanisms that are yet to be explored. Um, one thing which we've been wanting to explore <laughs> since since 2011, which we've applied for funding for about six times and not and not got it, is um, is. Uh, well, I was originally going to do this as part of my PhD, and we tried to get funding for me to be able to do that, which was to do pre and post uh, MRIs to look at um, uh, essentially look at look at a variety of elements of disc condition um, to see whether or not there are actually intervertebral disc adaptations as resulting as um, you know, occurring as a result of the intervention. Um, because we again we had looked into that kind of literature, and and one of the interesting things that came out, and again a lot of this research is on. Um, you know, porcine models or, you know, um, rat tail models and, and, and things like, like this, where 
Uh, but there, there was this sort of trend coming out that you know the disc doesn't just wear; it is tissue. It adapts, and it seems to uh, be able to adapt in a more um, a sort of anabolic manner to a more kind of high intensity but low frequency and low volume dosing of loading. So, um, were you thinking that this high intensity exercise provides a general anabolic effect to the area that would extend to the disc and help it repair itself? This is this is at least what we were hypothesizing because I mean the intervention. I should clarify the intervention that we do. Um, in the studies that we've done is essentially once a week, a single set to failure of lumbar extension exercise. So like the, the actual exercise itself is, is no more than two minutes of exercise a week. Um, so, I mean, we should, we should market that along with the uh, high intensity, stuff, <laughs> high intensity interval training stuff. Um, uh-huh. But, uh, but yeah, like, like, so in, 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 our working hypothesis, which we've yet to test um, or, or test um, properly is that, you know, the, the low, low frequency, low volume, yet high, um, you know, high magnitude of loading um, stimulus might induce some adaptive response in, in the disc. Um, I and like so, that yes. idea. I mean, I, 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 did a, I did a small study uh, uh, in my, during my PhD where, because we couldn't get the funding, um, we used um, stadiometry to be able to measure spinal height changes. Um, and th- the problem is it's not very sensitive. Um, and although we, we, we had to kind of build a custom uh, device to be able to, to, to measure them. Uh, so the en- I got the engineering department to build me some stuff for my, uh, for my research. And um, we did find like that the stadiometry was able to detect um, the usual kind of uh, creep that you see from sort of uh, quiet sitting. So, you know, you, you're, if you sit, then you, and you keep measuring uh, spinal height, it, it goes down over time. Um, and so we were like, okay, well, we, we're able to detect that phenomenon, um, but we didn't see any changes in spinal height as a result of the intervention that might indicate, you know, uh, greater uh, disc hydration, um, which is why we, at some point, we'd love to be able to get the funding to be able to do the MRI study because we can get a, a better look at, well, what's happening across a variety of dimensions in terms of uh, disc health, uh, yeah. broadly speaking. So, yeah, so we, we, we want to do that still at some point. I've just got to <laughs> keep plugging away and asking for money and hopefully someone will say yes. <laughs> so here, I got a question for you. Um, you're talking about getting the isolated low back extensor, uh, extensor work done on this special machine that's not that available to most people. Um, what are some exercises you could do at home or with some common gym equipment to get the isolated lumbar work done? Or do you have to find one of these special machines? Uh, so that's, again, that's a great question. And it's an area where um, I'd love to, I, I've got ideas for research here, but unfortunately at the moment, kind of <laughs> not the time or the uh, the willing students to help out with them. Um, but th- I mean, we do really lack um good evidence for what other exercises um or or it's not clear whatever exercises might help strengthen that lumbar musculature now i i as much as i've kind of published papers saying like oh you know lumbar extension training compared to any kind of trunk extension movement is optimal um i still think that doing some kind of trunk extension movement is probably better than doing nothing um and i and i also know that i can say you know on an individual basis um we see, you know, there are varying responses. Um, so for example, James Fisher, um, did a study, um, while I was doing my undergraduate degree that I participated in. Uh, and I can say I was one of the few people in the deadlift group that increased lumbar extension strength as a result of the, the in that intervention arm. Um, so 
I, I, some, I wonder whether or not there are individual differences because of individual differences in uh, anatomical arrangements that mean that some people are better able to, um, you know, just purely for their biomechanics, engage the lumbar extensors in trunk extension movements. Um, I also wonder, um, and this is something I'd love to do, but again, it's a long. it ends up being a long study, so it's hard to do. I'd like to take um, people and see whether or not initially doing an isolated lumbar extension intervention to increase their lumbar extension strength means that then when they move on to trunk extension movements, they're better able to utilize that musculature and maintain the strength that they've gained previously on the isolated uh, lumbar extension. Um, so, uh, but I think in the absence of that, doing some kind of trunk extension is better than nothing. I think doing deadlifts is great, whether, whether it strengthens your lumbar extension uh, strength or not, because just being able to pick up heavy stuff well is a good skill to have. Um, and um, but there have been some studies that have looked at, uh, for example, Roman chair-based uh, trunk extension, um, and they, at least in terms of um, take it with a pinch of salt, e EMG studies have found that. If you try to kind of anteriorly um, rotate the pelvis and try to focus on a kind of lordotic posture as you kind of extend, then you can, to some extent, you can kind of try to feel like you're you're better targeting the lumbar extensors in the movement. Um, so, so a, a kind of a, a better sort of like. Um, kinesthesia and, and and focus on trying to engage that musculature in those kinds of movements is a good idea i wouldn't necessarily advise doing that during like heavy deadlifts but if you're doing more maybe kind of uh light to moderate sort of load uh trunk extension movements like a roman chair then then that's a good idea or, or again like if you're using a like a resistance resistance machine for the lower back most commercially available ones will have some kind of restraint. It might not be optimal, but it will, you know, some restraint is better than no restraint, I think. Okay. So let's shift gears. Let's talk a little bit about uh, an evolutionary perspective on exercise and back pain. This is something that you've written about. Uh, let's start off with the idea that there's such a, such a thing as a disease of civilization. And we, we see that with, uh, you know, obesity and a lot of metabolic disorders, um, Modern humans are, have these all over the place, but hunter-gatherers seem to have almost none of these diseases, which, which is to me has always raised the question, oh my God, do hunter-gatherers have lots of chronic low back pain or is this a disease of civilization caused by sitting at, in chairs on Zoom calls and all that kind of stuff? Uh, I think there's there's some books out that say you know you can you can cure all of your ails by living like a hunter-gatherer or a paleo person or a caveman. Uh, and so you've looked into the question about whether hunter-gatherers have back pain at the same rates as the rest of us. What did you find about that? Yeah, so I mean, this is this is fascinating. I, I, I'm going to say now, I got told off for going off on this tangent during my PhD because it... <laughs> no, no, it's, no, uh, no, no, no. Great stuff. It was... It was um, do you know what? Like, I'll, I'll say exactly why I got interested in this because I, at that time, like, the whole paleo movement was was it's kind of zenith and um and so i i i it got me thinking about um evolutionarily the evolutionary origins of low back pain because that was my, my focus at the time and I, I i went down a rabbit hole and felt very out of my depth reading a lot of the paleoanthropological literature and trying to interpret that with no training in that area whatsoever um but you know i i spent a couple of years thinking about it reading about it and and Put a paper together that 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 
peer reviewers with more expertise in this area than I, I liked. So I'm, you know, I was I was happy with that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I I spent a bit of time looking. Um, I, I was interested as well because I had um, I had seen um, stuff being shared by uh, Esther Goakley, um, who who often spoke about the you know the exemplary postures of you know these. Um, romanticized versions of of hunter gatherers that that um that that the kind of paleo community love and um so i was interested to go and see well you know what what data do we have on hunter gatherer populations with respect to low back pain and um the real answer is we don't really have any on like true hunter gatherer populations anymore but uh, we do at least have some on sort of more uh, pastoral herding populations and there is some data on australian aborigines although you have to take into account that they are somewhat more modernized than than they were but um i mean when you look across the um the data that we do have i mean it really doesn't there's, there's no convincing evidence that they have any less back pain that we do um one how thing good, that how good is the data i mean i know you've got uh i mean i looked over some of the data in your papers and so you find some what the rural tie and another group seems like they've got super low back pain and other groups they've got uh, really high, but it's not really clear. You know, you go ask people that are from a different culture, speaking a different language. Hey, how's your back feel? It feels just fine. What, what, yeah. what does that really mean? <laughs> you don't yeah. might, there might be a problem with the translation. So how good's the data on all this stuff? Well, so, so it, it's, it's not, not great. Um, and I mean, there, there is some uh, evidence that particularly in Australian Aborigines that, you know, they, they, they don't want to tell the white man that their, their back hurts because that signifies weakness. And um, so, you know, maybe even, lot... maybe even to their neighbors, it signifies weakness. Maybe well, there's exactly, a cultural exactly. norm against showing any kind of weakness. Who knows? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, so, so reporting is, is difficult here, but the fact that at least some of these cultures that we think of as being more sort of like traditional and less westernized um in some cases have rates that are that are almost as high as what we see in in uh, you know western sort of populations makes me makes me it, it it makes me think that it's probably an issue of reporting and probably an issue of underreporting more so than overreporting um it seems it at least seems less plausible to me that they're people are going to willingly kind of tell people like, oh yeah, my back's really bad from these traditional populations. So I, I feel like like in those studies where we've got incredibly low um, uh, prevalence rates, they are probably underestimating um, and more likely than those where we see high, high rates in these populations are, are overestimating. Um, so I mean, you know, I I I've I've been skeptical for a while of the kind of romantic picture of um yeah. you know hunter gatherers as, as being these uh, perfectly healthy kind of uh, individuals yeah, in that respect. Appropriately so, but I mean the the evidence is quite striking in regard to heart disease and o- obesity and metabolic issues. That yeah, that, that's absolutely, a, that's pretty that's pretty solid. You've got other evidence against the idea that the natural state of a human is not to have back pain uh, in the form of comparing human spines to to those of chimps and other primates yeah so i mean the the kind of i mean and this goes really back to um how the spine has evolved to permit the different forms of gait that we see across different populate uh, different populations different uh primate species and um you know essentially we we are we've kind of been left with the the kind of 
compromise of a spine that is long and flexible um, to permit our kind of bipedal gait. Um, whereas previously kind of our, our, our and, and again, this, this comes from looking at both um, the paleoanthropological literature and, and comparisons anatomically with um, great ape species, which obviously aren't our ancestors, but um, some of our ancestors had similar um or it's, or it's at least, you know, um, hypothesized that they had similar kind of uh, lumbar pelvic anatomy. Um, they had these kind of much shorter spinal columns. They had much higher um, kind of pelvis and iliac crests. That, that creates low them. back stability, right? And, it, and entrapment, yeah. It, it's basically just like a nice block um, uh, to permit the sort of gait that they were involved in, which is this kind of bent, nip, bent hip, bent knee gait that kind of, they basically just kind of, when they're bipedal walking, uh, waddle. Um, prior to that, um, you know, the what is emblematic of, of old world monkeys is this long, flexible lumbar spine because they a lot of their movements involve large um, excursions of flexion and extension because they're leaping. And, um, you know, I mean, if you watch like kind of, um, you know, gibbons and, uh, running around and, uh, and lemurs and, and, and things like that, they, 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 they yeah, they, they boing around. Yeah, there's a lot lot of spinal flexion extension occurring there. And so yeah, so we've kind of ended up with this with this compromise of um you know, a long flexible uh lumbar spine with not a lot of kind of passive um stability from our from our pelvis. What, what's the, what's the length for? Does that help the transverse movements in in the in the walking? Is that what that's for? Yeah, exactly. So if you can kind of look at Gras uh, um spinal engine model, uh, you know, his assertion is essentially, you know, we we it's it's enabled us to permit that kind of transverse movement uh, that occurs during uh bipedal gait. Um but yeah, the you know, we, and and the funny thing is, we um, you know, people often think that uh, you know, if 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 we had if we had evolved to be more susceptible to back pain, we would have died out years ago. But that's just not how evolution works. But you know, every adaptation we have has uh, you know positives and negatives to uh, to survival. Uh, well, you know, to, to fitness, which in in evolutionary sense is is do you survive long enough to procreate and and pass on your information? Um, and so you know the we we can have traits that are termed as costly because although the on on balance the benefits that they provide outweigh the negatives so you stand so up you get your hands free huge benefits it's okay yeah. if that you get some occasional back pain as far as natural selection is concerned as long as you can you know throw the spear at the woolly mammoth Exactly. Or see, see across the savanna, or you know, the, the you know the ability to better thermoregulate in those environments. You know, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of kind of hypotheses for why being upright convert uh, confers a considerable survival advantage. And so, if having a few niggles in your lower back is 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 the cost of that, then um, yeah. And again maybe maybe i wonder sometimes whether the, the 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 issues we see from low back pain uh, in kind of more modern times are a a result of low, the fact that we're all pretty susceptible to low back pain in the first place just because by dint of being humans um but that the so, socio-cultural kind of environment you know going back to this idea of pe that people are more likely to um to you know sort of experience disability as a result result of it because it's 
maybe a bit more accepted or um, to talk about it or to, you know, to, to, to not do things because your back hurts. You know, if your back hurt and you were being chased down by a, <laughs> by a, a saber-toothed tiger, you know, you'd still damn run. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very, very, very fascinating questions. Um, so also on hunter gatherers, you've done some look into how much they exercise, how much they move, what kinds of physical stress they're doing. There's this idea that you should move like a caveman or exercise like a caveman or have a paleolithic prescription to figure out how to exercise. I like these ideas, but you know, there's some romantic fallacies and naturalistic fallacies there. And you know, figuring out exactly how much uh, our ancestors were moving is interesting to me. And, and one way to do that is to look at how much hunter-gatherers move today. How many miles do they walk in a day? What kinds of physical tasks do they do? This is another area where you've done some research. What, what What's your general conclusion there? Or what do you find? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's interesting, actually. I think... I mean, it, it varies obviously across uh, the populations that you look at, the specific hunter-gatherer populations that you look at in terms of um, how active they are. Um, and it's very environmentally determined. Um, but they are, they're far less active <laughs> than, than we often think they are. Um, and again, you know, I, I, I gave Is sitting it killing them? Sitting is <laughs> probably not killing them. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and again, again, you know, actually, if you look across um, other primate species as well, like when we can be late, when they can be lazy, they're really lazy. Um, you know, there's there's no wasted energy there. Um, we're a little spend... bit late. We're we're a little bit less lazy than chimps and gorillas and bonobos. Is that right? Maybe a little bit, a little bit, but um, it's. I mean, the 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 differences we see aren't, aren't anywhere near as drastic as I think that they're normally portrayed, at least by that you know the kind of paleo evolutionary fitness sort of community um have you read the new book by uh daniel lieberman called exercised i haven't yet no i read the story of the human body when that came out but i haven't read his new book yet and i know herman ponce has got a book that's um that's just come out as well which uh, i'm, I'm definitely going to get that one that one's called burn and it's coming out in march yeah. now that reminds me ponce it was either ponce or raiklin these are guys that study the hadza along with uh, lieberman uh, he said in, a, in an article in NPR, these guys don't have back pain. Uh, that's interesting. I, I would think he would know. I mean, he might not have the formal data, but he's hanging out with these guys. He's talking to them all the time. I would, that's, I was, I, you know, I'd like to get a little bit more information on that, yeah, but there's certainly no data there. Yeah. Again, it would be interesting to know, like, like, um, you know, are, are they just telling him they don't have back pain? Because, uh, again, I mean, this is this is a real, um, I, I mean, I, I share a faculty at the university with um, sociologists who do ethnographic work. And, and um, you have to be quite careful. It's, it's a it's a sort of, um, uh, you know, Schrodinger's cat kind of uh, issue, the observer has an impact on, uh, on the uh, well, it's not not quite the analogy, but you know, uh, to, to what extent has uh, him doing research on them and, and elevating their... There's um, a transaction going on there. They're, 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 they're playing the people that are coming to study them. There's yeah, a whole yeah, business yeah. about going to study the Hadza, right? And, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, like and again, when you... I, I think what else is interesting is was when you start to nail, nail down what their activity patterns actually look like. Because actually, I mean, they are more active than, you know, modern populations are. Um, I heard a talk that you did where you you had an estimate of how much they walked in a day, how many steps they did in a day, which is a lot lower than the one that I came up with doing my own research. 
And also that I think Lieberman did. You you had these guys not really walking around that much. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a while since I, since I did that. Uh, I had it at like six to nine miles a day as an average, but you had it estimated lower than that. Yeah. I think it was when we were looking at, um, we were looking at the physical activity level levels across hunter-gatherer populations, agricultural populations, modern populations, and the Paleolithic standard. Um, and the interesting thing was that when you statistically analyze across those studies, there's not like any real significant difference. There's a slight trend towards greater activity levels in the hunter-gatherers and the agricultural uh, populations when you purely look at um, physical activity levels. But yeah, some of the studies that we looked at, I'm trying to remember now, were um, what what it did did was um, look at studies that had looked at foraging ranges um, and tried to sort of determine from them like how much you know uh, what sort over what sort of range people are moving why they're mo- making these movements and things like that and a lot of um, you know ch- children are a lot more active than adults um, and. Uh, uh, also, so some of the data from um, the persistent hunting studies as well, well typically show that even when they are moving a lot or moving far, they're n- moving at a very low speed. Like it is it, these persistence hunt hunts. You know, we see the the videos and stuff, and all we see are the clips of them jogging and <laughs> and uh, and this that, and the other. Most of the time, they're walking, at least from the data. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fast walk a little bit of a jog yeah 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 fast it's, a long time. it's a long time though i mean it might go like yeah. 10 to 15 miles yeah but also they're not doing that every day <laughs> no, they're no. doing that like um you know once a week maybe once a fortnight they're doing it when it needs to be done um and um it was an interesting thing there was there was a great um i'm i'm was it the Yamaguchi? I can't remember now. Um, God, because it's been about six years since I gave that talk. Um, the I can't remember what tribe it was now, but there was a great um, there's a great great uh, paper uh, of a South American tribe, I think in Bolivia. Um, maybe I'm going to completely mind blank on it now. All I can, but I can remember there's a um, there's a fantastic graph that looked at uh, that that visualized their activity patterns across different hours of the day, both night, uh, both night and day. Um, and most of it is very low. Most of it's sedentary. Most of it's very low level activity. You know, they're, 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 they're chill out when they need to chill out and they'll move when they need to move. Um, what, was, what was really interesting is when you look at the night, there's a thin sliver of, of very intense activity that <laughs> occurs in the middle of the night. Now there's the I would love to speculate on what that, that is. That, that, that's living like a caveman yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean so I, I think i think it's been over romanticized how much more active they are than us i think they are more active than us but not you know hugely more active i think what's more interesting though is when you look at the patterns of activity it's typically when they are active it's more low intensity um uh longer kind of slower duration um uh, longer duration slower activity and bursts of high intensity of effort work work well, this is one something I noticed from one of your talks that you're saying, you know what, they're not, we're not really doing that bad compared to hunter gatherers in terms of the low level activity, but they have more intensity in their day. Where does that come from? If you're hunter gatherers, what do they do that's intense? Well, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, again, if they're hunting, it's typically the, the hunting. It's the, you know, in the, in the persistence hunt, it's the, the, 
final sprints, you know, the short sprints and things like that, or, or the occasional lifting of heavy things, you know, when you're foraging, having to carry, you know, the big basket of berries back or. But you got, but um, that's going to be, that's going for miles. I mean, it's kind of intense for a long time, but it's not like one of your hit sessions where you're, you know, it's like a, a minute set. Yeah, no, I mean, and this is the thing, but I guess we can also then get into the debate of like, I mean, for them, practically, it needs to be that far, because that's how far they've got to walk. But, um, you know, would they would they get the same physiological uh, benefits in terms of fitness, health and well being if they had to walk a 10 for that distance? Probably from what we know from modern exercise physiology in terms of what dose you know, induces, uh, you know, degree of adaptation. So I think there's also a caution that needs to be had in terms of going like, well, we should just emulate what they're doing. I mean, they do what they're doing because that's their way of life. That's what they need to do to, to live. Um, for us, we're, because it's not part of our life, what we're, what our kind of goal I think should be is to engineer, well, think first, what, what do we want out of this? If it's health, fitness and wellbeing and et cetera, then we need to think to ourselves, well, okay, what's the what does modern exercise physiology, coupled with some understanding of our evolutionary kind of history, um, end up providing us in terms of a a prescription to maximize those outcomes? Um, you know, that doesn't interfere with the way we currently live. Okay, so this 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 is a transition, and the other topic I want to talk about, if you have time, you have you have time for one more? Talk yeah, about yeah, yeah, high, sure. talk about high intensity stuff in general. So. Uh, we know there's a lot of research that says you can get a lot of the benefits from exercise in a very, very short amount of time if you do something that's very, very intense. Fitness benefits, health benefits, uh, lots of studies on Tabata protocol, stuff like that. You're, the, the style of training that you have been a part of, the, you know, from Arthur Jones, the HIT style, is really compress that intensity down into the smallest little pill and say, this is the essential active ingredient in all exercise. And we're going to give you this pill, but it doesn't, it doesn't taste that good. <laughs> it's hard to swallow, isn't it? Because the kind of intensity that you see. So I watch videos of people doing hit style exercise. I just watched some of you too, uh, on online doing like, let's say you do a set of, you know, you do one set for one muscle group and it's how long, like a minute, and a half or something. And yeah. it's intense. You go to failure and most people never go to failure. And if you watch someone going to failure, it's horrible. <laughs> they're, they're breathing really hard. It looks like a, like a, the opposite of an orgasm. It looks like, people, <laughs> it looks like you're dying. <laughs> so, I mean, I've tried to do this myself to do like proper high intensity going to failure type stuff. And you say, well, this is only going to last a, a minute or two, and I'm just going to tough it out and then be done for the week because that's all I have to do for the week. But it's that last 10 or 15 seconds is incredibly difficult. And I think there's only certain kinds of people that can find the motivation to do it. But I know you've studied uh, motivation to exercise and, and the perception of effort. Let's talk a little bit about that in relation to the kind of exercise that you that you do and recommend. Yeah, sure. So, so. Yeah, and actually, this ties in nicely because um, we've recently just pre-printed a um, well. As far as we're aware, where it is the biggest and longest study of, of of resistance training that's that's ever been done, and it is a retrospective study. But we have um, data from um, we've we've partnered with a, an organization called Fit Twenty, who essentially. Um, have a franchise model where their studios deliver once a week supervised high intensity resistance training. It's 
approximately six exercises, single sets of failure, bish, bash, bosh, done. But they record all of their data from all of their clients and it goes straight up to a cloud database. And and, and they graciously gave us access to that. So we had nearly 15,000 people uh, worth of data over almost seven years and were able to model strength adaptation over that time from just doing once a week um, training. And um, yeah, to kind of highlight the, you know, the, the, uh, the benefits of it, um, and this is interesting as well, just in terms of strength development. After about a year, we saw rapid gains in strength, uh, sort of 30 to 50% gains in strength over the first year of training that then start to plateau out and essentially just pretty much plateau out after that point. Um, it was after, a, after a year, it plateaus. After about a year, we see see that kind of plateau starting to kick kick in. Um, now, of course, we don't have a comparator group or anything like that. We don't know whether um, maybe changing the stimulus, increasing the volume, you know, variety, all of the things that people say need to be done to break plateaus and whatnot would make a difference to that. Um, uh, we suspect probably not. We think that that you know a, a plateau in in performance, given that that amount of time, is is pretty much a just a physio physiological kind of. Uh, um, certainty um you know mileage will vary in on an individual basis but um what one thing we did do is we we took data from the open powerlifting database and we took a random sample of 10,000 powerlifters and did the same thing we modeled their performance over time um, and they show a tiny little increase in strength up to about a year and then they also plateau in terms of performance uh, after that period of time so and that's the, despite the fact that powerlifters typically train you know almost exclusively with higher volumes periodized programs and all this kind of stuff so um I, I, the interesting thing is at least from a public health perspective minimal effective dose uh, training in that form um, can pretty much get you where you're going to go. Tons of bang for your buck Absolutely. with the yeah, very yeah. high intensity stuff. But the kicker is, is it harder to motivate people to do that very high intensity stuff? Yeah. So, so this, I think this comes onto the question uh, as well of, um, Obviously, the recommendation with a lot of this training is to train to failure. Now, if you actually look at the the data on this, and and Brad Schoenfeld's recently published a meta analysis on this, um, there's not really a lot of difference in terms of training to failure or not training to failure. Now, an issue with that research is that it typically looks at that question in a dichotomous fashion. So it's to failure or not to failure, and most of the studies that have um, examine this typically the not to failure condition is still pretty damn close to failure yeah the um, question is how close can you get should you should you have zero reps in the tank one reps in the tank two three exactly and so you know we we've done work as well looking at how good people are at predicting how close to failure they are um, and I'm also in the in the process of doing a meta-analysis with Israel Halperin, um, where we've pooled every study that's looked at this, this, and and people aren't very good at predicting how close to failure they are. Well, they they're not, to... they're not. I thought that RPE was generally people are pretty good at, at knowing how hard they're working. People tend to um so when you look at predicting proximity to failure, I mean, so we assume that people's predictions are based on how hard it feels. It's probably a mixture of how hard it feels, how uncomfortable it feels, do I want to stop now, and things like that in reality. Um, so people tend to um, overestimate how close to failure they are. Um, by around about the meta-analysis that we've done says that people tend to be about one rep off. So, um, so for example, if people, it's, it's not a huge difference, but it may be enough of a difference to make, make a, you know, have an impact on adaptation. Um, but th this is where I think practically it's, um, it's the case of, 
you know, I, I, I typically tell people now, now, look, look, aim for failure, because, you know, if you get there, you've crossed whatever threshold there is. Um, we also know from the evidence that if you train to failure, as much as people will, people in the sort of strength and conditioning community often talk about the potential for overtraining and things like that, there's, there's next to no evidence that that is the case, except for one poorly conducted indirect study with some well, you know, especially not with the style of but i mean the, with the style of training that you recommend is preventing over failure is kind of baked into the basic recipe because you're you're only doing one set and you're only doing it once or twice a week anyway exactly exactly yeah um and so you know what i tend to tell people is you know if you aim for failure and try and get as close as you can get you've probably got as close as you need need to um and so it's it's a good good goal if you can get there then you know you've at least crossed that threshold but um it does seem as though though you know the the probably the the most important component but not the only component and and one which can be influenced by manipulating other aspects of training is probably the intensity of effort that people put into the training um but yeah, like we, we, I, I'm, I'm in the process of, of doing uh, more kind of psychophysics work on trying to really understand, um, you know, how good is our perception of effort as a, as a representation of the actual effort involved in task performance, um, you know, particularly things like exercise, and um, yeah, people. It seems as though our perception of effort is a, is I call it a coarse grained representation. It's like. We're pretty good at telling if something's harder. We're pretty good at telling if something's easier. So kind of like directionally, we're pretty good at knowing when things are getting harder and knowing when things are getting easier. Um, but the the accuracy of it in terms of saying like, you know, if this require actually requires like 70% of your capacity, um, you know, 70% effort, um, it might feel to you like it's like 75 or 80%. Um, yeah. And, and there's a lot of noise, but um, but direct, but coarsely, it's, it's not a, bad representation of it but then on on that individual kind of case by case basis it's worth knowing that like okay like this might feel i might feel like i'm only gonna get one or two more reps out of this but i i should just keep going just to double check like i think with your when you're doing the hit style exercise knowing that is much you have much less margin for error than like it like a more conventional exercise thing where you're going five days a week and you know three sets of ten like that if i show up you know, I, I'm used to going to the gym like five days a week and doing three sets of 10 type stuff. And if I work moderately hard every day, I'll get the job done. But if I'm doing the style of exercise where it's only going to last for, you know, a minute or two, all, all of the benefit is in that last, what, 20 seconds. And if you miss that, you're getting nothing. <laughs> and it's well, very hard to nothing, get but... yourself into that. It's very hard yeah, to get yeah. yourself to that last 20 seconds. So there's an interesting discussion here, actually, where so I was involved in the revision of the UK Chief Medical Officers Physical Activity Guidelines, which are basically like, I guess, what the um, sort of CDC um, guidelines are. I think it's the CDC that put it out in the US. Um, but uh, the Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, this is UK's version, essentially. Um, and I was involved in in revising and reviewing the evidence for the two, 2019 um, guidelines. Um, and it was interesting, actually, because we got into a bit of a debate because um, the guidance we were given was that we were providing guidelines based on what the evidence for efficacy is with regard to the optimal dose. Um, and that the guidelines aren't intent were to say like, look, this is what you should do. And then it's up to other people to kind of like figure out ways of getting people to follow those behaviors. And so I was lumped with reviewing the resistance training research and, um, 
And when we looked at the data, it was like, well, actually, you know, once a week gets you pretty much what you're going to get. Um, but the current guidelines were to engage in in that type of activity twice a week. Um, and there was an interesting discussion that, that, that emerged across the committee, which was uh, to say, like, look, you know, there are... Um, we need to potentially consider the impact that changing guidelines might have on public perception and things like that. So we um, we ended up going with twice a week still, but acknowledged in our report, like there is some evidence that actually this could be as low as once a week and that's absolutely fine. Um, but the, 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 um, the, the argument put forth around it was, look, you know, twice a week isn't worse than once a week. Like it's not like doing it twice a week is going to cause any problems. But if you tell people once a week and they miss one, miss a session, then they've missed it for a whole week. If you tell people to do twice a week and they miss one, then they've probably still got what they what they need to get out of it. So I, I tend to, you know, as much as for example, um, so that like the Fit Twenty um, study I mentioned is is a unique kind of population, and you know, they these are clients who have, um, you know, they, for them they've decided this is what they want to do. This is the service they want. They want to go uh, train once a week. Um, I personally train two or three times a week. Um, and I tend to say to people like, look, you know, unless you're really committed and able to stick to that kind of like once a week uh, protocol, then train a little bit more frequently, give yourself a little bit more kind of like uh, leeway to miss sessions here and there if you need to. Um, but, you know, don't don't sweat it so much, I think, as yeah. well. I've become way more laid back about, about exercise prescription. So I think that you could, I think that I've read something from you and I and hit people in general can give pretty short, sweet, evidence-based recommendations for doing resistance training. So like how many times a week, how many exercises, how many sets, what, what give, give us chicken out like a really short, sweet recipe that would work for a lot of people provided they could find that they could get, they can do the high intensity stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so I, I think a, a perfect kind of minimal effective dose um, approach is uh, well, you know, one, once a week, but I'm going to say twice a week because of exactly what I just just said. But you know, twice a week, uh, an upper body push, uh, an upper body pull, and some sort of lower body compound movement, um, and you know, a single set of those to failure twice a week is is going to get you pretty much everything you're going to get, um, at least for the general population in terms of you know uh, health, fitness, um, etc. You know that that's pretty much it, and and the vast majority of people could do that with some um, some form of a press up, um, some form of a a row based exercise at home from a you know table or from you know using a towel or something like like that wrap uh, you know hung over the door, um, and then you know body weight squats are a bullshit. Um, now the lower body stuff is um, when you start to get when you're strong. Um, that, that can be uh, uncomfortable because the time under load becomes quite long. It's horrible. <laughs> it's absolutely horrible. I, I, I don't think that I'm capable of going to failure in a squat type movement. I can do it with like pull-ups or push-ups. I mean, I literally just fail, but I, I will not fail in a wall sit. I will, I will quit. <laughs> so one of the things I do, uh, I do suggest for people uh, on a wall set is to do is to basically use a kind of like isometric co-contraction with it as well. Um, and think to yourself, like contract your quads, contract your glutes, contract your hamstring strings, and basically just tense as hard as you can. Okay. And so think, that'll make think, it quicker. Yeah, I, I want to try and fail as quickly as possible because that will reduce the amount of the, the length of time I have quick. to experience yeah. the uh, the discomfort. 
because <laughs> um, I think as well that exercise in particular, um, because it's an isometric movement as well, you get more peripheral occlusion, you get more kind of group three, four um, fiber afferents, uh, afferent fibers uh, firing, you know, you get a lot more discomfort as a result of it. And then because the actual uh, force requirements are very low to do that movement, it lasts a lot longer. So you end up experiencing that discomfort over a longer period of time. And um, I mean, I personally love it, but as I said at the beginning, I'm a masochist. And <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've had you for a while now. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, what What are you working on now? What What's the kind of a question you have? New research, new direction. Um, uh, so I'm. I'm constantly working on a bunch of stuff at the moment. I mean, I've got I've got a lot of great PhD students working on a variety of topics. I mean, one of the things I love so much about my job at the moment is um, I, I've taken a real interest more in sort of um, methodology and statistics. And, and so I find myself being involved in a lot of projects and more in that kind of general um, philosophical, methodological and statistical kind of um, role. Um, but uh, in terms of specific stuff that I'm really interested in enjoying at the moment, um, uh, I and, and my colleague James Fisher had led a study last year where we were looking at what impact lockdown had on people's resistance training behaviors. Um, and so we did quite a big um, international survey study of that. And so that was that was very interesting to look at um, how how people adapted to being able to continue resistance training with, with the absence of, of gyms, um, what was impacting, um, you know, their sort of perspectives on that training and, and so on. So that was, that was interesting. Um, but the, the, the real thing that's kind of, it's been my kind of puzzle I've been trying to work on for, for a number of years now, I've always been fascinated by this idea of effort and what, what is effort. Um, and I think it stemmed from, initially resistance training and um you know the idea of training to failure and I, I published many years ago on this idea of like i hate the i hate the phrase intensity like it gets misused it's confusing it's um you know I, if i use it i try to qualify it as intensity of something as in you know the magnitude of effort or the magnitude of load or whatever um but this idea of like what actually is the effort involved in in doing a task um you know whether physical cognitive whatever um, and then what is the kind of, you know, what is it that gives rise to that kind of phenomenological experience of trying to do something? Um, and that, that's been, that, that's been utterly fascinating. And I ended up down a huge rabbit hole with that because it started with interest because of resistance training and exercise more broadly. And the more I read the literature in our fields uh, on that topic, the more and more disappointed I was with the lack of precision in terms of definition of terms and, uh, you know, lack of kind of um, consideration for, um, you know, a more kind of philosophical conceptual analysis of like, what what actually is this thing we're trying to we're trying to understand we have to figure say think what it is we're trying to understand before we can then even take any steps towards figuring out how the hell do you damn how do you measure the damn thing and how do you you know actually try to observe it and and, and manipulate it and see what effects it's happening on things well, and so closer, um, the closer you look the fuzzier it gets right yeah well at, at, at the very so I, I was fortunate last year in a weird way. I, I got, uh, I was put on furlough at the beginning of lockdown um, and it actually opened up a little bit of time for me to, um, to spend working on this topic. And I'd had a paper in me for probably the better part of three years that needed writing. Um, and it was a really enjoyable experience to sit down and, 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 and put that paper together. And, and I published it subsequently as a preprint where I've tried to kind of outline all of this 
you know this huge amount of research that I've read read over the last you know decade and try to come up with a a good operational um, definition uh, you know conceptually and construct wise for the actual effort involved in doing a task and then try to um, which I think I think I've got a pretty good robust can you, definition can you tell us in, in can you tell us quickly what your definition of effort is or do we need a PhD to- <laughs> no 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 it's it's really simple like it's so simple that I feel like it's stupid like like that no one else has put it down well actually that's not not true like some people have conceptualized it in this way but they've just not been particularly clear in how they've sort of explained it and and, and it's normally been in quite obscure sort of uh, journals uh, so essentially it's as simple as saying um, it's the ratio of the demands of the task that you're performing to the current capacity to meet those demands. And so, and this is where like uh, resistance training is a wonderful example for it because you can always use the example of saying, well, if you can lift a hundred kilos and I give you 50 kilos, well, then that takes 50% effort to do it. Um, and, and you can think, you can conceptually think of it at, at any given point, you know, you, if I tell you to continue doing reps of that, uh, of that 50 kilos, well, every rep you're doing is causing fatigue. What is fatigue? It's a drop in your capacity to meet those demands. So the 50 kilos remains the same. You start it with a hundred. Every time you do a rep, it comes down. And so that 50 kilos is becoming relatively higher and higher. And so it requires relatively more and more effort to do. Um, and so, you know, just conceptualizing it in this way has opened up some interesting possibilities to better explore than the psychophysics of, well, if we're saying actual effort is this this operationalized definition, then we can start to look at tasks and say, well, what is the actual effort at a given time point in this task? And then what are people's perceptions of the effort at that time point? And we can start to map how well they kind of uh, um, agree with one another. How good are our perceptions um, at being a representation of the reality in terms of the actual effort required? Um, and so I'm, I'm actually at the moment, because we're still in lockdown in the UK, um, I my wife is, uh, <laughs> is um, ambivalent about this, but I'm, I'm actually doing some uh, some small sample but high trial number experiments at home <laughs> with uh-huh. me and my wife at the moment, um, looking at uh, exploring some of these psychophysical relationships using a variety of different kind of tasks, uh, experimental models. We've got uh, a a fatiguing model using a, um, a an isometric hand grip dynamometer, which we can use, uh, which I've got one which records uh, forces in real time, um, and that's nice because essentially we've got a protocol where um, you know you set say ten percent of your MV- of your initial MVC. So you do an MVC. This is how strong you are. Okay, we're going to set ten percent of that. You're going to then uh, squeeze and maintain ten percent for thirty seconds. Every ten seconds, we give uh, from a zero to one hundred percent. Uh, you know, how much effort does it feel like? Um, and then then you do another quick brief MVC and then you do the 10% for, uh, and then the, the force requirements are always 10% of your baseline. So the force requirements remain the same, but every 30 seconds we're doing another MVC. So what we're able to do is take each of those MVCs all the way up until the point of task failure and plot, fit a regression to them to say, well, between each of those MVCs, what were we predicting your MVC was at any given point? And so we can calculate at any different time point. What is the it estimate. accurate? Can you, can you accurately predict? I mean, it seems to be pretty good. Like but the decay and fatigue is pretty consistently just linear across time. Um, so it's quite not nice. And the nice thing is, is actually, um, and not to get too sort of like 
statistically heavy in it. Um, normally, you've got worry about overfitting with statistical models. If you put if you put too much stuff in it, you make the model too complex. It will fit the data perfectly, but it won't explain anything to you. Um, but for this, uh, we almost aren't worried about overfitting because we're not interested in um, explaining fatigue. So even if the fatigue was a weird, complicated kind of, you know, uh, po polynomial to the nth degree, um, we could fit the model to it to it, um, and say, well, we're just interested in the, um, the, um, the relationship between whatever the model predict, whatever the best fitting model prediction is and the current task demands. Um, and then, yeah, then we can start to, to, to plot those together. We're doing another one as well, which is a simple matching task. So it's a case of saying, well, um, like Todd, I'm going to give you this hand grip dyno and I want you to squeeze it with, um, 10%. And now when you squeeze it with 70% and now 80%. Um, and then what we do is we take the forces you produced and express them relative to your MVC to see, well, how much how much effort did you actually put into it versus how much effort you thought it was because I told you to squeeze at what you thought was 80% or whatever. Um, uh, interesting. I, I predict that people are going to be pretty accurate in, in, with their perceptions of effort within moderate ranges of effort that they normally make. With your with your with the high intensity, that's not an area that I go into that often. When I do, I'll bet I'm not that accurate. Well, so so see, I think uh, there, there's an inherent scaling uh, ceiling and floor on this anyway, because people are actually pretty good at knowing. Like people are good when they know they're trying as hard as they can, uh, or, or they're fairly good at it, because there's a ceiling effect somewhat to it. Assuming people are not conflating their perception of effort with how uncomfortable it feels and other salient kind of um aspects of that that phenomenological experience um and also people are very good at knowing when they're not doing anything <laughs> so zero and a hundred <laughs> are good are good anchors what's interesting is what happens in 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 the middle um and at the very least um you know the data that uh, i shared it on my twitter actually some of the some of the trials that i've i i I've started uh, modeling some of the data just to take a look at it. Um, and on aggregate, I've, I've, I suspect on aggregate that actually um, the perception is actually pretty good. Um, you know, over, over sufficient trials, sufficient uh, experiments, um, you know, people are generally probably on average not bad at perceiving the effort required. Um, bear in mind, this is me who thinks about this a lot and is very uh, experienced, and my wife is definitely not. Like, we're chalk and cheese in terms of that that perspective. Like, she hates sport and exercise, and <laughs> and I love it. Um, so, so we're almost a good contrast. But she's almost as damn good as I am. Like, <laughs> getting this stuff. Interesting, yeah. Uh, so, um, but yeah, but like trial to trial, there's a huge amount of variation. Um, I think as well, there might be some interesting components that we see in the fatiguing trial where um, we're starting to see that the perception tends to grow quicker than the actual does. Um, because it's interesting, if you have a kind of, um, if, if even if you have a linear decay in terms of like the your MVC going down and fixed force demands, what you end up with is an effort that looks like that rather than like that. Um, just because of the, the nature of how that ratio changes between the two values. So actual effort kind of increases like that. Um, but then people's perception, or at least our perception of effort seems to go like that. So it kind of goes quicker and then sort of like starts to uh, meet where it is at, at 100%. Um, but again, we, we've not done a huge number of trials because I'm, I'm, I'm basically getting away with what I can with my wife at the moment. <laughs> well, best of luck with that. Hey, where can we uh, find you on social media or the internet or, or you're on Twitter, right? 
Yeah, so Twitter Twitter uh, is where I'm most active, and it's uh, at James Steele II. Um, there's a story behind that. It's supposed to be James Steele the um, second because my dad's also James Steele. Um, and uh, and yeah, like I, I tend to share pretty much any of the work that we do on there. Um, also, random anime videos and clips and <laughs> various things as well. So uh, you know, it's 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 a pretty laid back account, and I, I tend to moan about a lot of open science and bad science stuff as well. Um, and then ResearchGate is a good place to keep up to date with, um, you know, any new research that we've uh, that we've published or new preprints or, or anything like that. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I really enjoyed it. No problem. Thanks for having me, Todd.